0: Good to see you guys all this morning. If you remember, we are studying in the book of Numbers or Safer Bamid Bar, trying to read the Bible that Jesus read that impacted the way he saw the Word world, just hoping it'll do the same thing for us, allowing us to get maybe new insights in into his life and ministry and maybe our lives in the world. And today's text is kind of strange. We only read part of it before, but it's a little bit of one of those troubling or challenging stories. And one of the ways I like to think about stories like this involves a simple concept that's often used to describe like complex systems and behaviors. It's the concept of the feedback loop. Are you guys familiar with this idea? It's, it's when some stimulus elicits some kind of response that then feeds back into that original stimulus, either fueling more of it in a positive feedback loop or less in a negative feedback loop. So in a positive feedback, that was funny. That was funny, were you doing that on purpose? That was not planned, that was just Johnny being Johnny right there. So yeah, well played, give it up for Johnny. So like in a positive feedback loop, a produces B, and then B feeds back into A, producing more of it, which produces more B, which produces more A, so it's, it's like on it goes. It's like in old westerns when something would spook one of the cattle, like a rattlesnake or a loud noise, or if you're Billy Crystal, you take your coffee grinder on a cattle drive, City Slickers, anyone? Anybody watch this lately? We watched it with our kids. Still holds up after 30 years, surprisingly. Um, but it's, something startles a cow, it freaks out, that's stimulus A. It produces a response in another cow, that freaks out, and then they both become another stimulus, and then it goes round and round, and then you have a, a stampede You know, spooking all of these cows. That's like an example of a positive feedback loop. A negative feedback loop would be something like shivering when we're cold. If the body's core temperature gets too cold, it will produce a response of shivering, this like rapid contraction and release of our... Core muscles, and this feeds back into A, but only in the negative. So shivering will raise our core temperature. That's that's a negative feedback loop. And sometimes the feedback loop is immediate, and sometimes it's delayed. Do you know what I mean? Like when I was six years old, I still have this memory. I walked into my parents' room. My mom was ironing clothes. For some reason, I have no idea why. I walked up to the iron and iron and said, "Is this thing on?" And stuck my hand on it, like. It, and it was bad. It was like you could smell the skin burning. It was, it was gross. There was blisters. It was a whole thing. And, and you can imagine, this is the last time I've done this ever in my life. <laughs> that feedback loop was immediate. I was not confused as to why my hand was burned. But sometimes in like complex systems or ones with interwoven feedback loops, it's delayed for a long time. And there's a disconnect between stimulus and response. And and if the consequences take like generations or centuries, by the time they register with those who are responsible, it can be too late to do anything about the problem. I know a, a musician who was married for like 35 years. He spent like all that time traveling and performing all over the world while his wife stayed home and worked a job and raise their kids, and she paid a really high price for his career, and um, though she was struggling, she never really said anything, and, and when she did, he was just so self-absorbed, like musicians and artists, we all, everybody's self-absorbed. <laughs> it just didn't read it, register, and then one day, after 35 years of this, he came home from the road to find his wife, who never like, drank a drop of alcohol, was just drunk as a skunk on the floor with a whole bottle of, of vodka. And he walked in and she's like, I'm done. Move out, get your things and go. And, the, and that, that, was, that was the end. Because by the time the, the feedback actually registered with this guy, it was too late to solve the problem. And these types of delayed feedback loops can be catastrophic. Like when the time between stimulus and response is measured in centuries or generations, humans have a hard time connecting their actions with consequences. And often this means the problem has just progressed so far. There's nothing that can be done. A lot of people think this is what has happened with climate change, for example. There are a lot of positive feedback loops going on. There's one with the melting of the permafrost. Have you ever studied this? It's really kind of fascinating. There's this this line that runs around the planet, kind of close to the poles and at high altitudes. And beyond that line, the temperature rarely ever goes above freezing. It's called permafrost. But as the planet warms, this line is like creeping toward the poles. And as it moves, the permafrost thaws, releasing millions of tons of greenhouse gases that used to be frozen in the ice. And these gases then do a feedback loop. They feed the problem. They feed global warming, and then the temperatures rise, and the permafrost melts, and more gases are, are released, and this is on and on it goes. It's one of thousands of little feedback loops that they think are driving global warming or climate change right now. In nature, the feedback is kind of one-to-one. It's easy to spot, but for human beings, the feedback loop is much slower. Like the pain of climate change is just now beginning to register with some people. Things like extreme weather, floods, wildfires, droughts, crop failure, pandemics. you know The feedback loop um, connecting human behaviors to climate change is so delayed it's really easy to just ignore it or deny it, and, and by the time it ends up being painful enough, it's possible that it might be too late to, to make a difference. And one way to address things like this is to try and shorten the feedback loop. It's like when you drive by those signs, you know, those signs on the side of the road with a, with a radar gun attached to them and it displays your current speed, and then the speed limit, and your speed's in like big bright letters, and mine's usually about 10 or 12 over. And um, there's research on this. Like 80% of the time, people slow down when they see these signs, which is weird to me because there's, you know, every single car comes equipped with one of those signs built right into your dashboard, (laughs) you know? Like a speedometer. So why does that external sign make us slow down? It's because the, the only feedback you usually get, if you're driving too fast, is you know, a, your wife telling you to slow down. I'm not saying me, but it could be that. Or a ticket, you know, and these, these things don't happen that often, but this sign creates this new feedback loop, it makes us aware, and the, the tension between the two numbers, the higher it is, probably the more apt we are to slow down. So sometimes if you shorten the, the loop, the problem can actually get solved before it runs off the rails. All right, so why am I going on about feedback loops? Well, in the scriptures, there are often times in which the children of Israel find themselves doing something that's gonna end up having like catastrophic impacts on uh, much later on in their life. And in those instances, the the narrative will often portray God as kind of entering into the story and accelerating the feedback loop, making it more immediate so they can see the consequences of their actions and change the way they're living before it's too late. And our story today, I think, is a bit like that. It's kind of the low point in terms of the entire wilderness story. Things are going very badly. And and, and they're really kind of looking for somebody to blame. And what happens is this guy named Korah, a Levite, who's not part of the high priestly family, but he's part of the tribe of Levi. He leads a rebellion against Aaron. And he gets about 250 people to follow him. And they confront Moses and Aaron saying, you've gone too far because the entire community is holy, every last one of them. And the Lord is with them. Why then, he says, do you exalt yourselves above the Lord's assembly? So this guy, Korah, is not happy with Aaron and Moses. And to kind of understand what's happening here, we sort of have to remember um, what is going on, like big picture with children of Israel here in the wilderness. God is establishing in them a little oasis of wholeness, you know, and flourishing in the midst of the desert. And so, like, the the camp corresponds to the land of Eden in creation with the 12 tribes camped in this giant circle. And the the inner circle of Levites and priests, it's like a new garden of Eden, a circle within a circle where people people are living in very close proximity to Yahweh. And then the tabernacle is like a new tree of life where God's presence lights up the, the pillar of smoke and fire it's all symbolizing kind of genesis moves creation moves creation rightly ordered so these guys are kind of subduing the the barrenness of the desert acting as agents of god's blessing who extend hopefully this flourishing and wholeness to the rest of the world and the levites they had this special role to play in the organization of the camp. They, they lived in this inner circle surrounding the tabernacle, and the Levites' job was sort of like, um, I heard one scholar call it, facilities and maintenance for the tabernacle. That's what they did. They, they worked in and out the ta- around the tabernacle, standing guard, keeping unauthorized folks out, ca- caring for like all the equipment, maintaining all the operations of the priests. There was a lot to do. This was I mean, a really messy place, the tabernacle was. And they're butchering thousands of animals, separating out all their parts. It's gross. Burning some of them on the altar, taking some out to burn them at the perimeter of the camp. And there was a lot of, like, blood and fire and ash and smoke and waste. And so somebody had to do the work of keeping this area and these things clean, dispose of the waste, maintain the equipment. And then when it was time to move the camp, somebody had to pack this all up and then carry it and reassemble it so they could worship at the next place. This was the task of the Levites. They were the keepers of the tent of meeting. And within that inner circle of Levites was the family of Aaron, of course, the high priest. And they were priests who, who performed the rites and rituals at the tabernacle, and Aaron was the high priest. And so his family had a special role within that special role of Levites. Korah, this guy, he he was a Levite, part of the crew doing facilities and maintenance, but he wasn't part of Aaron's family, the priests, and he was upset about their special status. If you remember last week, um, we talked about the story of the spies who spy out the land of promise and how that story was connected to the temptation of Adam and Eve. You remember this in Genesis? So like the... Um, the, the serpent and the giants play the same role as tempters in that story. Well, the rebellion of Korah comes right after that, and it points to the very next story in the book of Genesis, which is Cain and Abel, and this sibling rivalry. So this is like a sibling rivalry among Levites. And in, in the Cain story, remember um, God asked them to bring a sacrifice. They both do. God approves of Abel's and not Cain's, and Cain ends up ends up killing his brother. Abel. So, so Korah's rebellion is supposed to kind of spur that story in our mind, this connection to Cain and Abel. It's a sibling rivalry rivalry among the Levites. And the conflict has now spread beyond just Korah and Aaron. you got these other two guys, um, Dathan and um, Abiram, from the tribe of Reuben. You know, Reuben was the oldest son. He's supposed to be, their family should be the heirs. They should be ruling. But here, Moses... Is, is the ruler? Then you got a bunch of tribal leaders who jump in to challenge Aaron, and, and then they end up stirring dissension among all the twelve tribes against both Moses and Aaron. And it's weird. I don't know if you noticed it when we read it, but like on one level, what they're saying sounds kind of right. Did anybody get that when we read it earlier? Like Israel is supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Why should one family? Like, be exalted above the others as priests? Why should Moses get to act unilaterally as leader? At first blush, when you hear the critique, you're like, well, it seems to have, like, they have a point. But the problem is, Korah is distorting the facts. Like, for one thing, Moses and Aaron didn't exalt themselves. If you remember, Moses didn't want this job. He tried to get out of it over and over. God chose them. For this job because the people could not be trusted. And furthermore, the children of Israel have been kind of terrible, like covenant partners with Yahweh, obsessing over giants, complaining about the food, complaining about Moses and Aaron, like begging to go back to Egypt, projecting, like we talked about last week, all their insecurities onto God, accusing Yahweh of being faithless. So the the real problem here is that God cannot build a new humanity on this faulty foundation. These people, they just do not yet know the things that make for life and peace and flourishing. So God calls Moses and Aaron to act as mediators, almost like a buffer between Yahweh and these, these wild, you know, faithless, grumbling people. And it's not like Moses and Aaron are oligarchs, Russian oligarchs or something, like getting super rich off the people. Like most of the time their job is pretty miserable, but God chose them and asked them to agree to just submit themselves to kind of a higher standard than the rest of the people and to somehow try and model faithfulness to people who really didn't know what that even meant. And, and really, all spiritual leadership is, in a sense, like this. It's not really supposed to be about, you know, getting a private jet. Um, like, what's the dude's name, Benny Hinn? He seemed to always flush with cash, you know? It's not like that. It's not about controlling other people. A lot of pastors these days are getting exposed for really controlling behaviors. This is good. It's not about any of those things. It's about going first going the extra mile and pursuing faithfulness when nobody else does. And in doing so, then you set an example so others can see how life is supposed to be lived. That's really what it is. You know, God doesn't elevate leaders so they can have special privileges. God appoints leaders who will just lay down their lives for other people. They're not exalted as much as they are chosen to be, you know, humbled to be servants. And so, in a sense, their authority is constituted by this willingness to be humiliated. I always say being a pastor is like sharing an inside joke with all other pastors. And mostly the name of the joke is just humiliation. <laughs> like that's just how it is. And, and during this, you know, this embryonic stage in Israel's life, everything's kind of exaggerated for effect. So the children of Israel can begin to see, so they'll wake up and see it. It's it's creating these feedback loops. So they'll go, oh, this way leads to death, this way leads to life. And so Korah raises this rebellion. They come at Aaron and Moses with pitchforks and and say, you chose this cushy job. You've exalted yourself above us. And Moses and Aaron, they kind of take the feedback. They fall on their face. And, and, And Moses reminds them, don't you remember, like, We did not choose this job. God made us do this job. And he says, Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has set you apart from the community of Israel and given you access to him to perform the duties of the Lord's tabernacle and to minister to the community and serve them? Now that he has advanced you and all your fellow Levites with you, do you seek the priesthood too? Truly, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have banded together. For who is Aaron that you should rail against him? And then what happens is, Moses, like, designs this little test where, where God can decide who's, who's right. He basically says, you guys want to be high priests, do one of the high priestly things. Everybody bring your own personal incense burner to the tent of meeting tomorrow, like, 12 o'clock. We'll see who wins. Like, it's was like kind of one of those things. And Korah and, and, and Dathan and uh, Abiram and all the 200 followers, 250 followers, they all bring their incense burner bef- before God. And then he's like, we'll see what happens. And before anything even happens, God tells Moses, like, oh, I'm so going to let these guys have it. Like, it's kind of a little inside thing. And, but it's, it's not funny. It's serious. Um, and Moses and Aaron kind of show why God has chosen them to be leaders. They say, oh God, source of the breath of all flesh. So they're they're reaching back to um, creation, and God breathing Ruach Yahweh, the breath of God, into, into the dirt, into the ground, and bring, making it a living being, right? Uh, they say, "Of oh, source of all, breath of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be wrathful with the whole community? And God's like, okay. Um, I'm not going to kill everybody, but Everybody, you might want to take a few steps back from Korah and these guys. (laughs) And it actually is connected to stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's like, you need to take a step back. You cannot handle what's happening here. And then Korah and his family and these other dudes stood at the mouths of their tents. And then it says, if all these people die a natural death or if their fate be that of all humans, like they live to the end of their life and die at a ripe old age, then the Lord hasn't sent me, he said. But if the Lord performs an act of creation and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them and everything that belongs to them so that they descend alive to their grace, then you know that these men disrespected the Lord. It's interesting that the phrasing there, um, this perf- Lord performs an act of Creation. There are lots of different ways to translate. The, the word is um, beriah, and it means to bring something, like, novel, something brand new, something without precedent. So, like, the, the act of creating the cosmos is beriah. The act of creating human beings was beriah. And here Moses says, if, if Yah- Yahweh does beriah, something totally unique here, like a one-time thing, then we'll know who's right. Only here it's not an act of creation. It, it's in a sense an act on par with creation, but it's an act of decreation. Like they were made from the dust of the earth, and now it's the dust, they're gonna go back to the dust of the earth. So it says scarcely had he finished speaking all these words when the ground under them burst asunder, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, all course people. All their possessions, they went down alive into Sheol. The earth closed over them, and they vanished from the midst of the congregation. So this is a, it's an act of decreation, instead of the breath of God bringing life to the ground. The ground extinguishes their breath. And linguistically, this is it's, it's connected to creation, obviously, but also to the story of Cain and Abel, the sibling rivalry. And and the part in that story, Cain and Abel, where where the ground, remember, it swallows up Abel's blood. And then the ground sort of opens its mouth and cries out about Abel's death. It's the same language used here. The ground sort of opens up and swallows Korah and the rebels. So it's linked to creation. It's linked to Cain and Abel. It's also linked to the story of Noah and the flood, which is sort of the first big act of de-creation in scriptures. Essentially what what has happened here is that God is accelerating the feedback loop on the impact of things like sibling rivalry, rebellion, discord, violence. It's accelerated. The feedback loop is sped up and instead of dying like years from now in their beds surrounded by families, the ground just swallows them up. They go to the place of the dead right now. It's an act of decreation that illustrates more quickly than normal where their actions will take the children of Israel. And so this path leads to death and destruction and to the decreation of life and flourishing. It's like their actions would undo the original tent of creation itself. And to keep this from happening, God speeds up the feedback loop. Says so kind of, let me, let me just show you where this is going to go. Here, sibling rivalry, jealousy, discord, those things lead to horrible violence. The loss of human life, the negation of what creation is all about. And then it says, you know, as if that part wasn't enough, fire from the tabernacle does like that scene from um, Raiders of the Lost Ark where it just like shoots out and kills the 250 people, um, consuming them. And of course, children of Israel start freaking out. They have a sleepless night. They come back the next day railing on Moses and Aaron saying, you're the ones, you have done this, you brought death upon upon these people. And then, I mean, it's so cinematic. Suddenly the cloud appears over the tabernacle And everybody goes, (laughs) like God has shown up and he's ticked, right? It's like, hide yourself. I'm going to annihilate. So he threatens again. I'm going to annihilate the children of Israel. And immediately, it's kind of weird to think about, this plague breaks out among the people. So somewhere in the camp, somebody gets sick and then the guy next to him gets sick and then feedback loop happens and then, more people get sick. You remember COVID. It's a thing that happens, right? (laughs) This plague breaks out. And um, you know, what are we going to do? This thing's going to sweep through the camp. And then once again, Moses and Aaron kind of show why they've been chosen to lead. So Moses told Aaron, go to the temple or go to the tabernacle. Grab your incense burner. Run into the middle of the camp. Figure out where where this disease is progressing. And he says, Aaron stood between the dead and the living until the plague was checked. That's what he did. Aaron just, like, runs and risks his own life to stand between the people and that which was killing them. And that's kind of where the story ends. There's a little more of it. And then then kind of the resolution of it all is that God tells them to take all the incense burners of the 250 people who got Raiders of the Lost Ark there and and repurpose them, beat them into metal plating for the altar in the tabernacle. So they metal these things as like ornaments on on the place, the altar, the place where God comes to meet with, with God's people. And it becomes sort of this warning to would-be challengers, but also this promise that even at the place of failure, God will show up and meet with his people. And it's interesting, thematically, that that plating then on the altar plays the same role as the rainbow in the story of Moses. It's this reminder, but also this, this promise. And it just lives there on the altar in the middle of the camp where God comes to meet with Israel. It's like saying, even your mistakes, you know, don't, don't disqualify you. My grace and mercy overcomes even that. All right, so what do we make of this? Awfully strange story. Like, I just wonder why they put that kind of stuff in the Bible. Like, don't they know? it? Stuff like Noah in the flood and the golden calf episode where like 3,000 people die or the, the one um, where Aaron's sons offer unauthorized sacrifices and are killed by the fire. Like, don't they know these are the stories that make God look bad? And that, that people who sort of don't know the whole story, don't know the context of the story or the language, the way the narrative functions, they're going to read these stories and think God's a monster. And of course, it is troubling. Like it's meant to be troubling. But it's from this really early stage in Israel's development. And if you look at how the narrative structured, these stories really aren't about a, a petty, jealous God who's insecure and lashing out at, you know, to punish free thinkers. It's, it's really about God speeding up feedback loops, usually removing some protection and giving people over to the destructive forces they're pursuing anyway. It's just accelerating the feedback loop so they can figure out where their actions are taking them and discern the things that may make for life. So in these decreation stories the narrative almost always portrays a people who are consumed by the very thing they are pursuing. This is like this is tough to think about living in, you know, late stage capitalism in the richest culture on earth. You see it in the story of Noah. Water is, this, water is a symbol in the scripture of chaos. And people are pursuing chaos, and so God gives them over to the chaos. And when the sons of Aaron are offering unauthorized sacrifice, they're building up this fire. It's the fire. They're consumed by their own fire, in a sense. God just lets them have what they want, usually by just removing some barrier. They had no idea it was keeping them safe. So if you, you remove Noah hide them away in an ark, then the chaos people want will just overtake everyone and they'll, they'll perish. That's really the, the logic of the stories. Remove Moses and Aaron. These people who are playing with fire will be consumed by the fire. Their unfaithfulness will sort of overtake the people like plague. They want to determine creation. Creation will swallow them up. So it's not that God's, like, dreaming up horrific tortures or exotic ways to put people to death. God is giving them over to the destructive forces they're pursuing, closing the feedback loop so they can see kind of where their actions will lead them in all creation, most of the time by just removing a protection or a leader or a mediator and giving them what they ask for, allowing the natural consequences to come sort of earlier than usual so that they can make the connection and change and, and it's it's brutal i mean it's severe it's an ugly story it's meant to produce grief and repentance i mean these are innocent children and coarse family just can swallowed up by the earth. it's very uncomfortable these images but they're not meant to convey this vindictive god they're just meant to speed up the feedback and show the consequences of these actions. And, and in doing this, they can see the lesson. That in this story, when, when leaders rebel and fall and act selfishly and rashly and pit one group against another group, it's usually the innocent who suffer the most. They pay the highest price. Human corruption is never like individualistic, it's always social. And so our failure never just impacts us. It always ripples out to those around us and out to the world. And so this is really a story about how to be the people of God, how to be a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It means, first and foremost, they're, they're held to a higher standard. And, and there will be times when the consequences seem exaggerated. These expedited feedback loops that, that can convey to all of humanity deep wisdom about life and the world and what it means to be human and how our actions as persons affect the community and our actions as a church affect the world. And you can see this in in the way that Jesus just kept picking at the Pharisees and Sadducees and leaders of the people, right? Even the Roman political leaders, he just gets sometimes really intense and angry with them. They're, they're the guys who eventually kill him. In fact, in his like famous apocalyptic speech in Matthew 24, he proclaims like this oracle of doom over Jerusalem. It's rough he's drawn on all, all, all the prophets um, using um, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel who are prophesying about Babylon how God was going to take down Babylon, they use this to describe Jerusalem, like their holy city, saying Jerusalem's like a new Babylon. It's so corrupt, it's about to be decreated. Which is actually what happened in 80-70. But it happened not because God wanted it that way. It happened because the people wanted it that way and they wouldn't change their mind. And so he warned them, like, this, this this decreation is coming to Jerusalem. That's what Jesus said. It's, it's happening. It's just happening really slowly, slowly enough that you can deny it. But this holy city that's meant to be a city on the hill, it's become a force for decreation. And, in fact, I don't know if you've, ever, if you've been there, if you've been to Jerusalem today, it's, it's still this way. It's a city gripped by fear split into warring factions. Like they've literally divided the city. Fortified and ready for war. And there's much more that we could say about the story, I think. But for me, the the crucial moment and the thing I hang on to always is that moment when the plague is just starting to roll through the people. Just like a wildfire ripping through a forest driven by the wind. And this could be it. This could be the end of the children of Israel. And Moses tells Aaron, run to the tabernacle. Grab your incense. Go stand between the advancing plague and these people who just tried to kill you, by the way. And in a sense, lay down your life for them so that they can see in in your actions the things that make for life. And I think that this is a good picture of just the task of the church. This is what we do, we stand between the living and the dead with the symbols of God's presence. That's what the incense was, the symbols of God's presence. Until the plagues that, that rob us of life are finally put in check. And this is why Christians have such a long tradition of like, building hospitals and training doctors and nurses, building schools and training teachers. That's why we work for justice and practice acts of mercy. And these are all different versions of doing what Aaron was doing that day. Just stand between the living and the dead and try to help the world imagine the things that make for life. This is what it means to be part of a church. Stand between the living and the dead. Often getting critiqued. Sometimes even putting our lives at risk. And then trying however we can to Point the world toward the path that leads to life. And reminding them, it's the the symbolism of the censor and incense, reminding them that God is not stuck away behind the doors of a church somewhere. God is out in the world on the loose, especially at the place of brokenness. This is where God is to be found. And somehow our lives need to reflect this. That's where we stand as Christians between the living and the dead, burning our incense, pointing the world to God. Amen? Let's pray. oh God, we're grateful for the story of numbers and, and even for these, um, these difficult stories that just sound so weird to our modern ears. And... Um, I pray that we wouldn't run from the tension of it. It's, it's a weird thing. It's, it's a brutal story. And I pray that we wouldn't like cover over it or excuse it, but that we would um, be willing to kind of take the feedback and not judge the, the Israelite people so harshly, but see, yeah, we pray. We probably do this, all of us. And I pray also, God, that we would just take that image of Aaron with us, running into the fray and just standing between the people and the powers of death, mediating your presence, your spirit in that place. I pray that that image would stick with us and that we would make that our lives work. For those of us who kind of feel unworthy or don't even really know how to do this, God, I pray that you would just wake us up with your spirit, give us courage, show us how. Amen. Would you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. The way we do this at Redemption is um, we just... We'll, uh, the ushers will come forward and release us row by row. And you can come forward and take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. And as you do this, um, the service will say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, I will remember or ha- answer however you're comfortable answering. The reason that we do this is that on Christ's last night with the church, or with his people, his disciples, He had them together in one room, and they shared the same loaf of bread. They all took a piece of it and the same cup. And he he said, so this bread is like a symbol of my body, and this cup is a symbol of my blood or my life. And then he said, every time you gather after I'm gone, eat this bread, drink this cup, like take my life into your life and be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then go out into the world and be my hands and feet. Be like Aaron in, this, in the censer, in the smoke, in the midst of the fray. He said, every time you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And so this is why we receive communion every week. And it's, it's also why we don't like you don't have to pass a test or take a class. Like everybody who calls on the name of Christ is welcome at this table. So before we receive, let's, let's all pray a blessing on the elements. Oh God, we do ask you to bless this cup, bless this bread. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All of this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come? of depths, the highest of heights, your love it changes.